Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome to another edition of Corner Kick. I am Nathan Strauss, joined by someone who did not commit a calamitous error leading to a goal. It is Nick Govinden. What is going on, Corner Kick fam? I apologize if I sound a bit different this time around. I'm not able to use my main office to record, but I have a feeling this is going to be a highly contentious and perhaps busier episode than we are accustomed to, so I'm excited. Look at you all fancy having an office. And I'm also joined by a man who did not make his senior debut for Barcelona with an assist and perhaps an error leading to a goal. It's Caleb Rhodes. No, they're still waiting for me to develop my talents, but I'm I'm gonna be like Brad Wanamaker making my like, you know, top league debut at age like thirty or something like that. So- a man can dream. And you know, the way things are going for Barcelona, it looks like there's a spot for you at uh, at right back yeah. or center back. That's Absolutely. quite a deep cut. Brad Wanamaker, I feel like, is a deep cut for a, a soccer podcast. Yeah, I guess. But I mean, for Bostonians who follow like I guess sports, he did play in Europe. And he, you know, he, he played in Europe. He yeah. also like I mean, he's on the Warriors now, the whole global brand and stuff. It's true, but it's true. Well, give, give me another example. Like what's not going to be a deep cut when you're talking about like someone way too old to be making a pro debut? I mean, Jamie Vardy. No, but he was a pro. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, we're getting Playing a little Europe sidetracked. Professional. I don't understand. Is there not? <laughs> He's like, we're getting, you know what? I'm just going to I'm just going to object. I'm just going to refocus us here before we get going, because, you know, we're already two minutes into the show and we haven't actually said anything of substance yet. So let's talk about let's start off the weekend the way uh, the weekend started off, which was with Liverpool dropping another game this time to. I guess title contenders, but certainly top four contenders, uh, Leicester City. Nick, it seems only fair that you get the the first pass at describing this game and where things went wrong. Sure. This was a meltdown of of really worrying proportions in that Liverpool were in full control of this game for the first 65 to 70-ish minutes. Uh, Mo Salah scored a brilliant goal following a, an amazing, probably assist of the season, from Roberto Firmino. Liverpool were in control. They were pressing high up the pitch. They were forcing Leicester into mistakes. They had control of the ball. Curtis Jones was once again having a very good game, sort of dictating the middle of the park for Liverpool. And then, and then, and then, and then, Thiago Alcantara, who really struggled to get into the rhythm of this game and has, you know, been the culprit of, I think, several pundits maybe feeling that that he's potentially the reason why Liverpool haven't been able to get into their rhythm in the past month or so, but we can delve deeper into that if we want to. Gives away a foul on the edge of the box. Uh, James Madison whips in the free kick. It goes past Allison. It's 1-1. And then the following four minutes are, sum up the past two months for Liverpool, a massive miscommunication between Allison and Ozan Kabak leads to Allison coming out and not collecting the ball and allows Jamie Vardy to walk it into the back of the net. And then Liverpool are forced to play a extremely high line to try and get back into the game, which allows Harvey Barnes to break on the left-hand side and score the game-killing goal for Leicester. So it was wrapped up within a matter of 6 minutes and 47 seconds for Leicester City. It was a collapse, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Brendan Rodgers era from Liverpool Football Club. 
Uh, they have now, <laughs> they've, uh, what is it, like six defeats in the last eight or something? Yeah, the only team that's lost more than Liverpool in this calendar year is Newcastle, currently deep in the relegation fight. Yeah, and I, this this led to this defeat led to a whole bunch of rumors that Jurgen Klopp was going to be resigning from his post at Liverpool manager. Obviously, it's been an incredibly difficult couple of weeks for him uh, following the passing of his mother. And now it looks like Liverpool are in a fight for the top four and really on the back foot of things, considering how well Chelsea and West Ham have been playing as of late. Caleb, any thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to give Leicester a lot of credit here, especially towards the end. Liverpool desperately need to make sure that Kabak, who had an error on the day, this doesn't you know, completely affect him going forward. And I think... Tiago is, as Nick mentioned, has kind of become like the scapegoat for this team. Uh, but I think that's just it. I think he's the scapegoat. I don't think it's Tiago that is like the fundamental issue for why this team is losing. No, I would agree with that. But I would also say that he's definitely, I think he's he's coming at a very uncomfortable time where the system isn't really defined. Uh, he's not playing with any proper you know, protection behind him for when he does make a mistake, it does get punished. Like Fabinho isn't helping him out in defensive midfield as we saw in his first game against Everton. So I think there is there is a situation where it's like he is underwhelmed just because the circumstances haven't helped him to perform up to his usual level. I think there's a reason that that he didn't start. He wasn't even supposed... I don't think... I think Klopp was resting him for this game, you know, and going with a, a, a bit more defensive structure with a guy like Milner. Yeah, right. Milner got injured, which is, you know problem in and of itself the 10th you know current injury on this Liverpool team but I think Thiago just needs a true defensive midfielder to really do his best we've known like it's never like he came from Bayern Munich and people knew that he's not that good defensively they knew that he can't really make a tackle and so when he's in the Premier League and he can't really make a tackle I don't know why people are like suddenly surprised by that attribute of his game however hopefully with you know the introduction of Kabak and Ben Davies you can move one of Henderson or Fabinho back into the midfield to provide, you know, some actual midfield sturdiness because a midfield three of Jones, Wijnaldum, and Thiago doesn't really have anyone who is really like a defense first or at least defense minded player. I, I just, I, I'm just slightly frustrated that we've just as, not, the, not we, the media pundits, Liverpool fans have just decided to put like all the blame on Tiago because it's, it's convenient. It's it's the Premier League pundits who only watch the Premier League. You know, it's the ex Premier League players who like don't watch a minute of the Bundesliga and they evaluate players based on not what they've done in the past, but what they're able to do in the Premier League. Yeah, but but either way, I think the idea that Klopp would leave after what's basically been his his first bad run of form in the last three years. I think is is pretty foolish. Nonetheless, Liverpool have a big test coming up this week. We'll talk about their upcoming Champions League matchup um, with Leipzig in just a little bit. But with the mounting list of injuries, it's sort of hard, I think, when you're a fan to to balance the fact that, yes, like injuries are a very valid excuse for when a team performs poorly, especially when you're a team that relies on structure. And, you know, when you take out four players, in the spine of your team, obviously you're going to lose some of that structure. 
Um, but on the other hand, every team has to deal with injuries to some extent. And it's always hard to process bad runs of form. So I certainly have some sympathy for Liverpool and Liverpool fans. But on the other hand, given the recent successes of the club, um, one year where top four is the goal instead of the title, um, I don't think that that's the, the worst thing yeah. in the world. And I think the thing that has not been irritating, but has been sort of interesting to see, because I don't really take much of the like the the punditry from you know ex-players and media members to heart really i think it, a lot of the times is reactionary but the thing that that i find quite interesting is that like liverpool with all of these injuries you know 10 first team injuries counting milner you know virgil van dyke joe gomez joel matip fabinho so they had no one really to deputize at center back in this game aside from a person they side from the last place team in the bundesliga and jordan henderson you know, Roy Keane and those people can like label Liverpool quote unquote bad champions. However, City, who lost nine games last season, and also, you know, Chelsea from 2015, who came in, or 2016, who came in 11th, you know, we don't really talk about them as much, or Leicester following their title winning season, they're in a relegation battle. So I think there is just a thing where it's like Jurgen Klopp has pissed off certain members of the English press. Uh, for being rather, you know, confrontational this season, as we've talked about on this podcast, his interview with Des Kelly, uh, the fact that he sort of had this heated argument with Roy Keane earlier in the season. So what I would say to certain Liverpool fans is, yes, this team is not going to go down as the greatest Premier League champions of all time. There have been worse defending champions in recent memory, even. Okay, okay, I'm gonna, okay, yes. I like how you called Kavak the center back from the last place team in the Bundesliga after last year. You're like, but the year before <laughs> he was, you know, the most promising defender. So I think the issue has been that when all these injuries happened, especially when Van Dyke first went down, you actually had a pretty good run of form for a little bit. And if anything, your defense got better, oddly, like statistically for like a month or two there. I think the problem was there was no public changing of expectations until now essentially so like everything coming from like the team etc was like oh no we're still in it as like trying to defend as champions and it's only now that we're starting to get the narrative like no actually our goals and expectations are like top four and so i think when you are saying stuff like oh no we're still gonna like win despite all this and then you start to do badly then like yeah you can say you're not living up to expectations i don't think it's all like roy Keane bias because he's a man U fan no that's not what i'm saying that's not what i'm saying i am just i am saying that like the injuries were an ex like not quote-unquote an excuse but were a thing previously like you were saying like were a thing a few months ago however more players have gotten injured since then and that is not being discussed as vehemently as it was when virgil van dyke went injured FSG, though, at the same time, also did decide just like not to add people to the team. And that's also a choice on the club's part to exacerbate for like the entire month of January when they didn't need to not having, you know, a center back available. So like it's not just like random chance. It's like also the club choosing, despite the protestations of Klopp or other people, like to not address these issues. And I think you have to do like you have to take some responsibility for that. Right, but I also think you're allowed to adjust expectations when things happen in your season. Like, at that moment, Fabinho was still in the team, Diogo Jota was still in the team, you know, Nabi Kaito was coming back from injury, now we haven't seen him in, you know, God knows how long. There's certain things, you know, that have happened in the months of December and January that have led to 
you know, Jurgen Klopp to come out and say, you know, we've shifted our goals, the title, we can't win the title anymore. And now we're just going to compete for the top four. Like I said before, like these are, these are factual things. It's not like Liverpool trying to get out of deep waters by shifting the narrative. I, I, but the thing is, I think Caleb's point is more along the lines of Liverpool fans, I think are accustomed to a certain set of standards. And I think that there was nothing in the sort of factual results of games to suggest that they weren't going to challenge for the title until like the reality of the situation really seemed to have hit like this week. I think that's true. But I also think we were saying at the beginning of the season, oh, even even with, you know, Virgil van Dyke, Liverpool's defense is very, very shaky. And and like you said, Caleb, it had improved shockingly somewhat after van Dyke uh, went out injured. But I think there is a case of, you know, look at how many points Liverpool got to last season. You know, 99 points. The point to- the points total that they're at now is like the worst differential between champions one season to the next season ever. And I think there is a case of like Liverpool in the past two seasons have totally outperformed the sum of the parts for this team. You know, if you look at the players who came into the game at Leicester when they were down 3-1 chasing the game, it was Jordan Shakiri and Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who is coming off of, like, a career-defining injury and is looking to to try and play himself back into form. So I think, as we've discussed, we're kind of coming to the end of this cycle for this particular Liverpool team. You know, Jeannie Wijnaldum is going to leave in the summer. There are murmurings about, you know, bringing in a fourth option for that front line. Certainly, there's going to be uh, a need to bring in more defenders, potentially a rotational option for Trent, certainly a few first-choice center backs to give the likes of Kabak, you know, time to grow into his role in the team. I also just think if, I wonder if like this is the end of this, this incarnation of the 4-3-3, if next season we see Liverpool shift into more of a 4-2-3-1 approach, which is what, you know, Klopp's bread and butter is as a coach. Now, you know, the circumstances that Liverpool have been given they need to do their best to make it into the top four or else they won't be able to achieve what they want to achieve, you know, as a club financially and on the pitch next season. However, I think this also is just the reality is starting to set in that this is kind of the end of this cycle. I think that is true. And we will get back to Liverpool later on in this show. But another team that has been on a really, really poor run of form is Tottenham. The last time they beat a team that sits higher than 18th in the Premier League is all the way back on January 2nd. They've lost five of their last six games. Um, and they've been and relishing they got, in reading these statistics. Well, I certainly am. It doesn't hurt to see them totally collapse in sort of epic Mourinho style. But we watched this game together. It was Man City 3, Tottenham nil in another episode of Pep Guardiola and City's just absolute dominance. Caleb, let's start with you. Takeaways from this game? Ilkai. 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 Oh my god, Ilkai. I don't know how they unearthed this amazing box-to-box Ilkai Gundogan, who scores at will, is the highest scoring player, I think, for Manchester City in the Premier League this year, is the highest scoring midfielder in the Premier League other than Bruno Fernandes. He got injured in this game. We'll see how long that is. But Guardiola has this team humming, and he 
once again has found a midfield superstar that seems to have just been kind of like waiting in the wings for like four years now at the club. I think this is like, I truly think, and I've said this before, this City team, they don't have De Bruyne right now. They don't have Aguero right now. This is a City team that's technically probably running at like 80% full strength. They still don't technically have a left back. I don't think anyone rates Zinchenko as a transcendent talent. Guardiola has figured it out, and that's scary for everyone. I think on Gundogan, I think he's always been capable of this greatness. You know, if, if you remember from way back in his Dortmund days, he was always capable of getting up the pitch and doing damage. I just think we haven't seen that for, as Caleb was saying, you know, four years since he's come to the club, just because of the the amount of injuries, the amount of damage he's been dealt uh, on his body, like the toll that it's taken. He's never been able to get up to 100% fitness. And the sad thing is that he did go off injured in this game. But in this season, he's been able to just hit the ground running. He's been able to work his way up into form, playing games early in the season, and also, you know, just transitioning into his new role as sort of a more advanced midfielder like we were seeing him do in the Bundesliga. So I think he's always kind of been able to play this sort of game as a transcendent number eight. We're just seeing that now in in the way that Man City manipulates space uh, in this sort of, you know, box formation where like Phil Foden and Gundogan have interchanging positions. And it, it looks really, really cool to watch. It's certainly exceptionally fluid and devastating. And this wasn't really a contest. Like Spurs offered very little aside from a Harry Kane free kick that hit the post. And if I was a Spurs fan... I would be incredibly worried that Josie Mourinho is signed on to this project until 2023. I don't understand what the game plan is anymore. Like the game plan was counterattacking football. That has not panned out as we've, you know, said before, you can't just counterattack. You need to have, you know, a semblance of a plan B. And their plan B just seems to be, you know, knock the ball around in the final third and and hope something happens. And this reminds me of like Mourinho at Real Madrid. And part of the reason why like Mourinho fell out with a lot of his superstars at Real Madrid is because he took, he took um, credit for, for that season where they scored like over a hundred goals. And then there was the report that came out where the players were like, huh? Like you haven't trained us in attacking movement at all. Like it's just been us like freestyling. It's the same thing here where like Mourinho has just abandoned trying to coach any semblance of attacking movement. And we saw in this game like he reached way deep in his pockets to bring on Dele Ali and Gareth Bale. And they also just kind of freestyled. You, you saw it at the end, like Gareth Bale was given the license to do like all of his flicks and tricks. And he, he absolutely left Bernardo Silva <laughs> in the dust. <laughs> but eventually like that didn't pan out because he was only given 12 minutes just to try and affect the game. But I think Mourinho really needs to to go back to square one and decide what the identity of this Tottenham team is going to be. Because right now they don't have an identity. They don't look like they're going to make it into a European place this season, you know, let alone top four. So this is a real, real concern if you're a Spurs fan, because I just don't see how they get any better. Yeah, and Spurs are just, you know, two points above Arsenal with a game in hand. They also have the sort of hectic schedule in the next two months where because of the Europa League, there's the potential for midweek international or continental travel um, every four days. Fortunately for them, they do have Wolfsburger um, in London both times due to the the weird COVID uh, scheduling. But 
as bad as as Spurs have looked, I think this is this game was really just a reflection of how City have evolved this year. Um, and it's definitely scary uh, seeing what they're capable of. The fact they've only conceded 14 goals, 23 games into the season. I think right now Ruben Diaz is is a contender for signing of the season. Um, and he I is think the signing of the season. He, yeah, I think, and I also think the race for for Premier League Young Player of the Year is between him, uh, Phil Foden, and Bukayo Saka, who we'll talk about in just a second. But I mean, City are just on the most obscene run of form. Their last loss was actually to Spurs back in November. Um, and they're on the longest consecutive winning streak in English history. They also have the traditional city uh, easier road in the Champions League with, you know, Borussia Mönchengladbach, which is, you know, significantly less difficult than what some of their peers have. Um, and of course, they do have Spurs in the Carabao Cup final in a couple of months as well. And if this game was any indication, it'll be another trophy for the massive vault sort of Mr. Krabs style uh, that Pep Guardiola must have somewhere in his house. Yeah. But- yeah. I have, a, I have a question about city and, and this is kind of like the most I'm ever going to lean into like a Nathan Strauss hot oh take boy. on this show. Doesn't matter since 2008 Manchester city have a, you know, transfer net spend of negative 1.42 billion in the Pep Guardiola era. It's come out recently that we've seen they have a transfer net spend of negative 618 million. I just think that like this season, you know, we know City's financials. We know who owns Manchester City. We know they have an extensive scouting network. But even if they didn't, they could cherry pick whoever they wanted to cherry pick. And they cherry picked Ruben Diaz from Benfica for 60 million. Is Manchester City and especially in the era of pandemic football, when we've seen that like Liverpool haven't been able to go out and make the signings they've wanted to make, uh, Manchester United the same. Is Manchester City winning the Premier League with this squad, with this coach, and with their resources? Can you truly label it an, an accomplishment anymore? It's definitely an accomplishment. Anyone winning the Premier League is an accomplishment. I think they have the best squad. And so... You know, in general, you do want to see the table actually reflect, you know, the quality of the teams. The best team should win, and I think they seem to have the best team. I agree, though, that obviously they have a type of financial muscle in their sports league that might be unmatched by literally any team in any major professional sports league in the world. And we talked about, you know, over the summer how they got away with this really heinous FFP ruling where they essentially got out of it um, without really taking a hit at all. And Guardiola even was saying that they were somehow the victims here. But I think the issue is that now we essentially know that their financial might is giving them a crazy competitive advantage. But it seems like there's no system in place in world football to address that at all. So I agree that it's 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 might be a bit of a hollow achievement because it just sort of seems like a given. Like if you can spend hundreds of millions more than your opponents, then like, yeah, you probably should win. But they do win. One point before we move on, on Ruben Diaz and his amazing performance in this game. Is that he didn't even start. Well, no, he didn't play a single minute. So yeah. I just thought it was funny because no, no. Nathan was waxing lyrical about Ruben Diaz, but he didn't do anything in this game. But, it was but I'm Miracle Port in this game. Remember that guy? 
Yeah, but, but Ruben Diaz is still good. I just don't think this is yeah. this is literally not the game where he demonstrated that. We can also talk about the renaissance of John Stones and sort of how he's become another 55 million pound signing basically in the way that he's performed this year. And the fact that he's only 26 years old and has been, you know, I would say one of the best center backs in the last like three months of the Premier League. I mean, that's just ridiculous as well for someone whose career at Man City was rumored to be over, you know, this past summer. I mean, yeah, I agree. I think I, I'm really impressed with what Pep has been able to do tactically. And I agree, Caleb. I think any time a team wins the Premier League, it is an accomplishment. However, I just think, you know, with what City are able to do, it's never going to mean as much to, I think, me and to a lot of people when City win the Premier League. Especially considering, like, we know what City were before the money came in. We know what they are now, post the money. And I think when Liverpool won the Premier League last year, you saw a lot more fanfare because people know who Liverpool are. People know the history of Liverpool. People know the players that have walked through the doors at Liverpool. We know the people like who are from Liverpool who have played for the team. And I think it's very good for City that they have someone like Phil Foden, who is a homegrown talent and who can, you know, represent them, you know, as being a part of the the Manchester fabric. And I think that's really good for them. However, I think, you know, it'll always mean more for the Premier League if Arsenal wins, if Manchester United wins, if Liverpool win, even if Spurs win, then if City win. And like you said, I think it just, at this point to me, especially in the pandemic, it will always be a hollow achievement. I think that is a good way to put it. I guess so. I'm not, I, I'm not totally sold just because I think as soccer has become more and more corporate because I don't have the same sort of despise i don't i don't have the same loathing for teams like bayern or teams like juve who do basically the same thing and just massively outspend their domestic counterparts and i sort of think that it's one of the like uniquely english things is like this this sort of pride and sort of local identity that comes with these different clubs that has now just been totally eclipsed like quite literally by a foreign element i don't know it's an interesting point um i think when you have teams like Liverpool, who seem to be poised to like become the next sort of dynastic team in the Premier League, um, only for it to sort of revert to the status quo of City winning. I could definitely see where that frustration comes, but we will talk more about that, uh, more about City, uh, perhaps next week on our on our when we preview their Champions League tie, which will not be much of a contest, as we sort of alluded to briefly before we move on to pastures greener um, in. Italy and Spain and elsewhere, we should talk for a minute about Arsenal beating Leeds uh, because Arsenal really came out and just absolutely smoked Bielsa's side. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say. Like Leeds, you know what you're going to get with Leeds. Either they're going to win like three or four, two, or they're going to lose like four or five, five, two in this case. They're always going to get one or two goals. Um, they're always going to leave themselves vulnerable at the back. This game, they didn't have their best player in Calvin in, uh, Calvin Phillips. Uh, Stroik was playing at DM, and he is uh, very much a championship-quality player. I think the thing that's impressive from an Arsenal perspective is that this front four looks incredibly tasty in Aubameyang, Smith-Rowe, Odegaard, and Bukayo Saka. Uh, you know, Saka continues to be... He's my candidate for Young Player of the Year. I think you can make the argument for Ruben Diaz, but I think... Just the way that Saka was playing, even when Arsenal was struggling, he was one of the only people really carrying them along into this new dawn 2021 exciting version of Arsenal where they have four really 
you know, key attackers that can go forward at the same time. I think I'm still waiting to see quality from Martin Erdegaard. I thought he was fine in this game, but Arsenal go to City next week. They're probably going to lose. Leeds are probably going to win. Uh, Leeds are going to probably jump Arsenal on the table yet again, and Arsenal are going to be back in 11th place. So until until Arsenal can, you know, find a find a time to go in a consistent run of form and get back up into the top seven, I'm just not quite sold on them yet. Dude, also, I I truly thought Leeds were gonna complete the comeback. Like as I as I texted in our group chat, a four zero Arsenal lead is the most dangerous lead in soccer. Um, and so I I mean I kind of agree with you, Nick. I think this is obviously like good and positive for Arsenal. It's always good and positive when your you know top striker who's been out of form scores a hat trick. It's always good when you put up four goals. But there was like a hint of of Arsenalness in the air here um that i don't think that they've they've banished yet um especially with players like tierney missing um etc etc so but you know three points are three points three points are three points indeed and yeah i do think that you know the battle in mid table is is very very much on you know between teams like arsenal spurs and leeds um at the moment so you know that's that's an excellent battle like that is oh, it's, oh, it's, a great, it's a great battle. I mean, it's, it's, the question, it's the question is going to be, you know, which one of those teams can break into the top eight. Right. And I think Arsenal are definitely the prime candidates right now. However, you know, they were just they just came off of a a awful one. nil loss to Aston Villa and have to contend with Europa League football in the second half of the season. So time will tell. Yeah, time will tell indeed. And, you know, between Leeds, Everton, Arsenal, Villa, Spurs and you know the potential regression of a team like West Ham. The 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 eleventh through sixth places um, are very much up for grabs. But well, let's turn our attentions to Italy, where it has been the Christian Eriksen Renaissance. He's looking like a man who's finally found his form after about a year of being out of favor. And Inter are buzzing along right now at the top of Serie A. First of all, I don't think there needs to be any renaissance of Christianity in uh, in Italy. I think they got that on lock. I think they know what they're doing in uh, in regards to God and all of that stuff. So I'm not sure about Renaissance. But yes, in regards to Christian Eriksen, a massive turnaround from the last year that he's had at the club. An outcast under Antonio Conte comes in in January, scores the winning free kick in the derby against their most hated rivals, AC Milan. Completely revitalized his career at Inter over the past couple of weeks and looks to be part of an incredibly balanced Inter midfield alongside Nicolo Barella and Marcelo Brozovic. I think that is a midfield trio that could probably just go on and win Serie A at this point, especially as we're seeing you know, Juventus put out these really confusing starting 11s and lose to Gattuso's Napoli and uh, AC Milan losing at home to newly promoted Spezia. Romelu Lukaku, I think, has just gone about his business this season. It is incredible the fact that like we don't talk about him every week as being one of the best strikers in world football. Uh, I think him being able to combo off of someone like Ericsson is incredibly promising for Conte. I think it's a shame that this team aren't in Europe anymore, that they had the early struggles this season, because I would love to see what they'd be able to do uh, in the latter stages of the Champions League. But yeah, I think the tide has certainly turned in Syria, and now it is Inter Milan's to lose. Yeah, I mean, the Lukaku stat from this week, he just reached 
300 career goals for club and country. He is the youngest player other than Messi and Ronaldo, I believe, um, to reach this stat. So he he is, you know, he is more prolific than I think is popularly recognized. And we should, you know, do something to, to change that. Um, I agree that it's a shame that this team isn't in Europe, but I think when they got knocked out, we had a similar discussion about Syria. And I said, you know, with nothing other than the league to focus on, I think they could really start to take the reins. And lo and behold, they are taking the reins. And, you know, with AC Milan, once again, playing well above their talent, um, Juventus lacking any direction, and then teams like, you know, Napoli and Roma still able to kind of like nibble um, around the edges. I think Inter Milan are like far and away the most complete, um, competitive and dialed in squad in this league right now. You know, I know we talk about how 538 isn't the end all be all, but they do have, you know, a 57% chance to win the league, which, in a, which I would say is actually on the conservative side. I mean, eight point, an eight point lead um, over Juve with a game in hand for Juve um, isn't insurmountable by any means, but the way they're playing right now, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't back anyone but them, uh, certainly. And AC Milan, you know, they are only one point off the pace as well. You do just sense, though, that they are, you know, a Zlatan Ibrahimovic injury away from, like, total capitulation again, you know, and then they've only won two of their last five games as well. Moving on to one of the more action-packed days that you will ever see in terms of European soccer. We've got Barcelona PSG uh, and Leipzig Liverpool full disclosure we are recording this the day before these two matches take place so it's a, it's possible that you know some things might shift and change between when we're recording now and sort of when lineups drop tomorrow and then of course there'll be another three and a half week break until uh, the next the second leg of these ties but certainly some tantalizing games out there let's start off with Barca PSG a rematch of the remontada from 2017 and, and one of the more famous European comebacks of all time. We obviously talk about Barcelona a lot. Barcelona coming off of a big win this past weekend. Caleb, how are you feeling heading into this tie, especially knowing that there will be no Neymar on the opposite touchline? This is the best possible setup we could have going into this tie. Obviously not having Neymar for the first game, at least, and perhaps the second, not having Di Maria, um, which means that, you know, they're going to be replaced by some combination of like Pablo Sarabia and Julian Draxler. Certainly a, a rather large drop off in quality is good. Playing at the new camp is obviously a major win for us because we tend to play much better at home. Playing with our team in some of the best form of this entire season Um with players like Trincao, you know, getting in and amongst the goals. I do not feel like I can really call this tie one way or another, but I think a strong 2-0 win at home would really set us up well. And like history favors us. I mean, we've played PSG in three ties since 2012. We've won them all, including the last time, the remontada. Um, if Barcelona win this tie, we'll reach the quarterfinals of the Champions League for the 14th time in a row, which would be a, com- a competition record. And historically, um, just for a fun stat, only one French club has beaten Barcelona at the Camp Nou. Do you know what that team is or when it was? 
Was it Lyon in the early 2000s? No. Nick, do you have a guess? The only French team to beat FC Barcelona at the Camp Nou? Yes. Uh, in, in, the, in, like, in like European competition, like Champions League. Oh, okay, okay, thing. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. It's not like a team that's good now. It's like... No, it's a team that's it, bad. Or mediocre, mediocre. Fuck. Most probably bad. Is it Mets? It is Mets. It was... <laughs> It was FC Mets in the first round of the Cup Winners' Cup in 1984. Uh, since then, no French side has ever beaten Barcelona on at, at home. So, point being, history history is on our side. History is pushing us forward. Context gives us our best chance because I think PSG with Neymar and Di Maria and Mbappe are, you know, probably too much for our, our frail defense. But right now, you know, if there was ever a time to seize the day, it, it is tomorrow. So. I think his. I think history is on our side. Is our always famous last words <laughs> for just about for just about anyone. Uh, I do agree that Barcelona do have you know a little bit more of the psychological advantage, perhaps heading into this game, just considering what happened in 2017. However, I think Kylian Mbappe alone is is going to be too much for this Barcelona back line. What we've seen Pochettino do with this PSG team uh, since he's come into the club is kind of go back to basics. He plays a very simple 4-2-3-1. Uh, unlike Thomas Tuchel, he plays players in the positions where uh, they are meant to play. Uh, obviously, that has worked for Tuchel at Chelsea, not as much at PSG. It's interesting because I think this tie might be coming, you know, just a little bit too early for Pochettino. I think if he had been the manager since the beginning of the season, there would be a little bit more stability, a little bit more understanding of what he wants, to, what he wants to do, and perhaps I'd be a little bit more comfortable saying that PSG could win. I think it's really amazing the turnaround that Moise Kane has made in his career, and he's become a reliable goal scorer for this PSG team. I do think PSG will end up winning the tie. However, I think this game at the Camp Nou will definitely be close. I am really worried about the frailties of this Barca defense, though. Yeah, I think. It wouldn't surprise me if Dest starts at right back um, just because I think you need someone who is a little bit pacier than a makeshift right back like Mingueza. Obviously, with Sergio Reto still still out after having been re-injured a few weeks ago. You know, if recent history is any indication, this first leg might not even be that meaningful compared to what we've seen in recent second legs with Barcelona and with Barcelona and PSG in particular. Yeah, obviously not having to deal with Neymar. I think I think if Neymar were fit, this would easily be a PSG favored tie. Um, Mbappe has sort of developed a reputation among, amongst French fans of not showing up in like the biggest of games on the club stage, which I think is really interesting. And you know, obviously he's only twenty two years old; like he still has plenty of time to assume the mantle of best player in the world. But if there was ever a game and a stage in which to do so. Being the focal point of an attack without Neymar uh, certainly is it. And the midfield battle as well, I think, is going to be really interesting because you've got players like De Jong and Busquets going up against a player who almost joined that triumvirate um, a few years ago and Marco Verratti as well. But Marco Verratti is injured. Is he really? Yep. Yeah, he is. I think this is actually, I think this is a key point, right? Like, yes, the Mbappe versus Mingueza mismatch, which I hope, once again, I hope Dest goes in because that is horrible. Like, Mingueza is barely quality enough to start in La Liga, but he's certainly not quality 
enough to play against the fastest. So I think it's gonna end player. up it's gonna end up being something like gay uh Drisagana gay Paredes Draxler or maybe like Ander Herrera gay Paredes. Certainly a gay Paredes double pivot. Yeah, I mean I think Barcelona actually like win the midfield battle without Ferrati. I think the Pedri Busquets de Jong trio has been truly fantastic over the past month and a half. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it's certainly interesting because, like you said, like the injuries change a lot. Like injuries change games. It's just going to be interesting to see how Pochettino. You've certainly seen they got a two-one win over Nice in Liga. I think it's going to be interesting to see how he handles going in this going into this huge game without these marquee names. Well, let's hop over to Hungary, where Leipzig will take on Liverpool again. Another one of the relocated games because of. Uh, a German rule against travel from England as it's a mutation zone for obvious reasons. Um, I have a sort of... Is that a formal term, mutation zone? Yes, it is. Zone? Yes, it is. Uh, Derek Ray had a really good thread on Twitter the other day about how... What is that in German? Mutation zone. Mutation zone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> sorry, um, sorry, it had to be done. Um, yeah, uh, for obvious reasons, this game will not be taking place um, just because of travel from England being heavily restricted all across the continent. So hungry it is. It'll be the Pushkas Arena, which will see Leipzig host Liverpool. Nick, again, I think we should let you go first on Why? this one. Why? Go first. I don't give a shit. Oh, you want me to go first? Yeah. I think Liverpool get blown out of the water by this Leipzig team. I think this game finishes 3-0 or 3-1 to Leipzig. Leipzig have the best defense in Germany. Um, by far, they've conceded only 18 goals in 21 games. Uh, and given the form that Liverpool are in um, and the limited amount of time that they will have had to recover, um, plus the obvious deficiencies at center back, I think this could be a really, really troubling game for Jurgen Klopp's men. I do think that when it comes time to play at Anfield, the the, the conditions will switch um, or wherever the second leg ends up getting played, the conditions might switch. But Leipzig are in quite good form. I watched them play on Friday against Augsburg and just the waves on waves in which uh, Nagelsmann's Leipzig attack, I think, is is going to pose real problems. I think it's going to contain players like Robertson and Alexander Arnold as well. I'm quite over eager about this game. I, I, I because I, I really am I'm quite confident in my prediction, which of course means that Liverpool are going to end up winning like four one or something. But Caleb, what do you think? I also think Leipzig have the edge here, just because they play one of the most tactically complex and dynamic systems in Europe. And I think that means that the midfield is going to be the key battleground in this game. And I think midfield, honestly, more so than like center defense has been where Liverpool have like struggled to figure themselves out. Um, Like, I just don't think Thiago, for instance, especially if they're going to not have Henderson or Fabinho in there is going to be able to deal with like, the random interchanges of like Forsberg, Sabitzer, and Kunku Olmo, who keep switching from like midfield to the attacking lines. And I also agree that I think Angelino is this like homing missile of an attacker on the left wing for Leipzig this year. And Trent, I think, is going to be really, really boxed in once again without having that type of midfield cover. So I think Klopp, I'm, I, I think, I don't know what the midfield's going to be. But I think if he doesn't get like a true defensive player in there, it, it will be just kind of like Liverpool overwhelmed, overwhelmed, overwhelmed. 
So I think the rough thing for Liverpool is that Fabinho is not able to play in this game. He's still injured. Had that not been the case, had Fabinho been ready to play, I think he would have seen Jordan Henderson move back into midfield at the weekend. Instead, he deputized again at center back, and it just didn't go well. I agree, Caleb. I think in order for Trent to play well, he needs someone like Henderson to cover his position, to sort of make up the ground for him in the Liverpool system. He's not going to have that in this game against Leipzig. I think Henderson's going to play again at center back alongside Kabak. I'm not especially confident. However, I do think that the games in which Liverpool are, you know, able to go toe to toe with another team, uh, just from a, you know, football standpoint, are the games where they play the best. A little the pressure's off them a little bit. And I think they they sort of thrive in an underdog scenario. I do think that Leipzig just have a little bit too much in the tank for this Liverpool midfield as it currently is. Certainly the Liverpool backline as it currently is. Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold have played an immense number of minutes over the past three seasons with very little rotation. And you're starting to see that have a really heavy impact on what they're able to contribute to this team. I think this is a game where Curtis Jones and Roberto Firmino are going to be really important and getting the ball up the field for Liverpool, trying to, you know, confuse Leipzig, drop into unfamiliar positions, make use of whatever space they're able to make use of. I think it's going to be a really difficult game for Klopp. I think Klopp certainly is a smart enough tactician to try and come up with some sort of game plan for this game. However, I just don't think Liverpool have the pieces in the squad as it is with only 15 available first-team players to contend with the full complement of what Leipzig tried to do. Yeah, and I think you mentioned, you know, creating overlaps and and maybe drawing Leipzig into some unfamiliar areas. I think Leipzig's back three is incredibly good at sort of reading the game. You've got a player like Upamakana, who obviously will be going to Bayern uh, in a couple of months, who really anchors that defense, but then really Orban um, oftentimes sits a little bit deeper. Uh, And again, it's going to be a really interesting tactical battle, I think. And um, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how this first leg pans out uh, because it could be quite the entertaining battle. The Wednesday games in the Champions League also, are... Do you need any, any, any more indication that Nathan secretly despises Liverpool Football Club? Just go back and listen to the amount of relish in his voice when he was saying that Leipzig would destroy Liverpool in this game and how much he enjoyed going into great detail of, of how he thinks uh, Liverpool Football Club are just going to be totally squashed as a concept in this time. No, I, I, I don't hate Liverpool. I don't hate... I've, in fact, I would say that out of all the big six clubs that aren't Arsenal, I would say I like Liverpool the most. Wait, but, but that's uh, all the big six clubs. He said out of all the big six clubs that aren't Arsenal, but that's all of the big six clubs. <laughs> so you do hate them well well anyways on to the wednesday games which are uh, incredibly shit uh compared to the tuesday games it's actually a little annoying that uefa won't do the sort of like nfl thing they always i know know they do and they do it in the group stage too but it's kind of baffling that in elite that in a competition that puts so much value on like getting these performances televised that they wouldn't just like arbitrarily move the games so that you have one marquee matchup on each day. Because I'm honestly not sure that I would tune into, say, like Juve Porto or Sevilla Dortmund over like Everton Man City, which is also going to be happening concurrently 
um, at the same time, which is obviously redundant. But yeah, I mean, I think that in that case, they need to be in like heavy communication with La Liga, Bundesliga, Premier League, and they, they just don't want to do that. I don't think they want to like ruffle the feathers any more than they have to. Yeah, but anyways, Juve getting another sort of easy draw in the first round, which is what happens when you oftentimes finish at the top of your group. Uh, they've got Porto uh, at the Dragao. I think this game might be quite boring and sort of finish in a 1-0, a 0-0 style before Juve take care of business on the back end. Even with Juve's mixed domestic form, they should be heavy, heavy favorites. We might also see Sergio Conceição's son who made his debut at the weekend for FC Porto. Conceição is obviously the manager of Porto. So that is kind of an interesting storyline, the fact that the coach's son has now been firmly introduced to the first team at FC Porto. That's kind of cool. I always love love good human interest stories like that. But definitely the more interesting tie on Wednesday uh, is Sevilla Dortmund. Dortmund in really poor form. They did just announce the hiring of Marco Hossa for next summer. Their entire team is really in somewhat of a transitional state right now. You've got players like Holland, Reyna, and Sancho, the former two who are obviously like consistently being heavily linked with foreign clubs, and you have to think that one, if not both of them, will leave. They've fallen all the way down to sixth, and they're 16 points off of the pace right now in the Bundesliga. Um, and then you've got a team like Sevilla who have solidified themselves as you know, Champions League spot contenders you know they're in they're in fourth in la liga by seven points over the next closest team so just coming off a win of Bar- over barcelona in the copa del Rey. absolutely and they, they've won i think nine straight games at this point dating all the way back to mid-january so i think that this has potential to be sort of a sort of this this game has big uh europa league final vibes to it or this tie has very europa league t- final ties to it in my mind but it could be a really, really open game. I think we're going to see goals in this one. You have to go all the way back to January 3rd for the last time that Borussia Dortmund were able to keep a clean sheet in all competitions. Uh, that was against Wolfsburg. But since then, they've conceded uh, four goals to Borussia Mönchengladbach. They've conceded two goals to Paderborn in the DFB Pokal. Uh, and at the weekend, they drew 2-2 to Hoffenheim at home. So it has not been the best of stretches for this Dortmund team, certainly defensively. I think they've regressed a lot from last season. Uh, They lost Holland for a large stretch of the winter, but he is back and he is scoring goals again. So I think that's a big worry for Sevilla. However, Jules Koundé at the back for Sevilla has turned into a superstar. And I think we saw glimpses of this last season when everyone was raving about Diego Carlos and his performances. But now this season the tune has definitely shifted and Jules Koundé, the young French center back has definitely become one of the most highly vaunted defensive prospects in Europe. And maybe even going forward, considering the incredible goal that he scored against FC Barcelona in the Copa del Rey, where he dribbled through the entirety of Barcelona's midfield. Um, so I agree. I think Papu Gomez is a really interesting um, tactical piece for La Patiqui to play with. I think they can deploy a number of formations effectively. We've seen them play 4-3-3. We've seen them play three at the back. Uh, and I think their ability to counter is going to be extremely problematic for this Dortmund team that doesn't seem to have it together defensively. I I think that 
Dortmund are severely overrated, and I think Sevilla are severely underrated, and I actually don't think this is going to be much of a contest, and Sevilla will walk through this tie relatively easily. Sevilla's defense is insane. They've only conceded, I think, 16 goals. Yeah, 16 goals in La Liga this year, which means they have the second best defense in the league after Atletico Madrid, having only conceded three more goals in one more game. They also are on one of the longest, you know, winning streaks in Europe right now. They're in excellent form and they actually have a lot, a lot of quality. Rakitic is very much not over the hill. Papu Gomez is one of the, was one of the best players in Syria. In Yusuf Nusiri, he has been electric over the past month. In Lucas Acampos was one of the Shonda best players in La West Liga. Ham in January, Yusuf Ndaziri. <laughs> Shockingly. Yeah. yeah. They have Kunde at the back, who is this strange, I don't know, box-to-box center back. I don't know if that makes Very sense. Very Marquinhos-esque. Yeah, he's he's like incredible. Marcus Acuna at left back was an amazing signing um, to replace Reguillon. Like this team is actually, it has experience. It has quality. It is defensively strong. It is offensively strong. And I look at Dortmund and I see a bunch of young players who can score, but they're a mess defensively. They're sixth place in Bundesliga. Like, I don't know why we should expect anything other than a pretty easy Sevilla sweep in this tie. Which means that Dortmund are definitely going to win. (laughs) (laughs) It has become customary on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we should. I don't think we should overlook how how important it is, or the ability of a guy like Erling Holland to just take over a game. But I also think that Sevilla are going to go through pretty comfortably. And again, Sevilla, we obviously think of them as being consistently one of the best operating teams in the transfer market. And someone who we didn't even mention, Oscar, from uh, who they brought in from Real Madrid, who had been on loan, I think, in Portugal for the previous two years. He's also been really, really good for them in midfield. So the Lopetegui redemption arc, I think, is 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 complete at last. Uh, and uh, well, even it though they're complete, it might be complete. It might be no, complete. It was complete when they won the Europa League. Like this is done. This is we're in, we're in season two of the 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 Lopetegui reascension. I think that's our show for today. Obviously, a full week of soccer coming up. We've got the Europa League on Thursday as well. Before another full weekend of Premier League soccer, we've got the Merseyside Derby coming up. Has slightly different implications this time around um, than it did last time. (laughs) The Merseyside Derby. Two red-hot teams coming into this game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you'll have all of that action. We'll be able to break down what happens in the Champions League this week, as well as preview the next set of Champions League round of 16 ties, including a tasty one between Chelsea and Madrid. Mm. We will have that for you next week. But for now, I've been Nathan Strauss. Caleb Rhodes. I've been Nick Vinden. And we will see you all next time.